Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that explores the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I had another great conversation on this episode with Tiffany Capers, the executive director of Crossroads Corporation, a nonprofit doing some really creative neighborhood building and revitalization right here in Charlotte. Tiffany and I talk about several things that should get your wheels turning about productivity and her habits and how she's navigated professional development opportunities along her journey on the path. She talks about how and why she's approached different opportunities and what she's looking for when she is hiring talent. Like all of our guests, she's got a half dozen or more resources to listen for that will also course be included in the show notes as always thank you for listening and if you haven't already please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can be sure to get alerts not only about our thursday episode releases but also a number of bonus episodes that are coming up in the next few weeks if you're not sure where to go just check out our website pattonmcdowell.com so without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Tiffany Capers. Tiffany, thanks for joining me on the path. Thank you, Patton. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, you have had a fantastic and impressive journey across several nonprofit organizations. Tell us, you know, how did you first come to the nonprofit path yourself? I would say I got to the nonprofit path via an indirect route. Um, I came to Charlotte to attend graduate school at UNC Charlotte, and I got my master's degree in industrial organizational psychology. And I thought I really would have had a career in a corporation as a human resources professional or organizational development professional and an internal consultant in a corporation. And that just did not happen. I think very naively, I assumed that a master's degree was the golden ticket and was going to be the golden key to open many, many doors for me. And that just was not my experience. And looking back on it, I would say certainly as a graduate student, um, and this is no slight to UNC Charlotte, the program that I was in was relatively new at the time, But it probably didn't have the the pedigree, if you will, or the the cachet of an Ivy League school. So just having a master's degree in my field really wasn't enough. And I, looking back on it, would have taken advantage of some externships and fellowships to really bolster my my resume and to bolster my, my portfolio, my body of work. So I had the degree and I started working at the city of Charlotte interestingly enough, in the Mayor's Youth Employment Program. The employment piece was very interesting to me because I was becoming very fascinated with how organizations and systems impact people and the degree to which they either foster or create obstacles to people really living, working, being their fullest, um, most brightest, most um, contributing selves. Right. So started with the city of Charlotte and what I guess started my nonprofit career really started in the public sector. 
I worked for the city of Charlotte for a number of years in the Mayor's Youth Employment Program and then worked in the Budget and Evaluation Office. Um, started working as an internal consultant there around strategic planning and um, at the time the city was really a huge champion of the balanced scorecard, a tool developed by some professors at Harvard. So I became an internal consultant as uh, an employee in the Budget and Evaluation Office and then from there um, began to lead the Small Business Development Program, did that for a number of years and served on some nonprofit boards all along the way. So was involved in the nonprofit sector as a volunteer, right. but hadn't really thought about it as a career path. So after working for the city for a number of years, then I uh, joined Foundation for the Carolinas, was my first nonprofit employment opportunity. And then from there, Teach for America, and now today leading a nonprofit organization in Charlotte. That's fantastic. And I'm, I'm guessing you would agree that while the path wasn't exactly as you planned from the earliest stage, all those experiences, though, combined to, uh, I'm guessing, strengthen your leadership now. They did. Um, they did. I would say working at the city in particular, I had an opportunity to work in programs that directly impacted people's lives, um, whether it was working with young people trying to find employment or working in housing code enforcement, trying to ensure that people had quality, stable housing. Um, when I was working as the small business development program manager, trying to ensure that women owned businesses and people of color who owned businesses had the same access to government contracting as other business owners. So I was always very much involved with work that directly impacted people's lives and the ability for them to work, play, and enjoy the, the community that we call home. So that's always been a thread. In addition to that, I would say developing some skills along the way that I feel are pretty requisite to being a, a leader of a nonprofit organization, or really any organization, but in the budgeting piece and the, the financial piece, if you will, being a good steward of resources, having worked in the public sector, uh, being able to cultivate relationships in the absence of resources, having worked in the public sector, <laughs> right. um, strategic planning, all of those were tools that I was gathering along the way that I didn't really, I didn't think about it in terms of, oh, I have to get this, I have to do that, I want to be a nonprofit leader one day, so let me cultivate these skills. But my, my journey allowed me to gather all of these tools along the way. Uh, I love the way you articulate that. And I think for anyone aspiring to join, uh, as many of our listeners are thinking about or early in their career in nonprofit, perhaps you do have tools in your toolkit or experiences already that will lead you successfully down a nonprofit path. Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone listening to really have um, have conversations with people who are in, in those positions. If you are clear now that I was, say, 20 years ago, find those nonprofit leaders and really ask them to have a candid and authentic conversation about what are the, what are the skills that I need um, to be an effective leader and right. then begin to cultivate those experiences along the way, along the way, whether it is in your your job, your professional, your volunteer opportunities. How can you develop, again, those tools for your, for your toolbox? It's great advice. And, and 
often, if approached respectfully, of course, I think senior leaders in, in our field are happy to talk to someone who reaches out and can offer advice. And, and so I'm glad you reinforced that. Um, Tiffany, as you know, one of the elements of our podcast is to talk about productivity. And I say Mm -hmm. that almost with a laugh because (laughs) I'm not sure any of us ever reach the ultimate productivity stage, but you have a ton of things going on in your world. How do you stay productive and organized with all that you have to deal with? Very, very true. I, I try to make a lot of lists. I try to start my week with a list. Inevitably, by Tuesday at 12, <laughs> that list is edited and changed. <laughs> right. But starting out with an earnest effort at the beginning of the week and the beginning of the day, what do I need to accomplish today? Um, I would also say a part of being productive as any leader is also knowing how to delegate and how to prioritize. Not everything has to be done by me. So having a strong team, making sure your team feels both empowered to, to pursue their goals and comfortable checking in with you when they're not clear on what, they, they're, what they're pursuing, I think is as much a part of being a productive leader as anything else. Knowing how to prioritize and delegate and building that strong team around you who can also help you advance the mission and vision that you are aspiring to to put into the world. Um, Outlook is your friend. I block out time. uh, I I block out time for travel. If I have to be at a meeting and it's offsite, I will book in that meeting with at least 30 minutes of travel to and from. Sometimes if, if you have an assistant or someone on your team who's helping you manage a calendar, um, they might book you back-to-back meetings and that just, just not give you enough time to, to really maneuver. So I try to put as much of my calendar as possible and include travel time on my calendar. I also look at my calendar over the course of you know, a week or two. And if I have some natural blocks of time or I don't have a meeting or I don't have um, something that's, that I know I need to put on my calendar, I block up that time for work time. And I will put on there what I need to be accomplishing if I need to be um, looking at some some data or if I need to be thinking about, well, what am I doing two weeks from now? Because I have a panel discussion that's coming up. So I try to put meetings, phone calls, travel time and work time on my calendar as well. And I found that to be um, as helpful as anything. As you said before, you've best laid plans in terms of planning out your week. But that has been what has been really helpful to me using my Outlook calendar. That's great advice, Tiffany. And I think so many of us, the calendar can quickly overwhelm us, but you've been and are proactive on all the elements uh, when your calendar can quickly fill up and not leave you time to actually get work done. And I'm I'm glad you reinforced the point of our to-do list uh, should probably ask the question, can I delegate? Yes. Because other than piling up on ourselves. So, uh, Great advice for anyone trying to stay ahead of the organization game. Yes. Um, Let's move to the early stage. You're now in a position to hire people into Mm -hmm. your organization, which we'll talk about at Crossroads. But um, how do you advise people that maybe come to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit? Mm -hmm. Or or in, in your case, perhaps you're literally hiring someone. Are there certain things you look for? There are, Patton. I would say one of the one of the key attributes I look for is 
either a connection to or a sincere interest in the mission. Um, working in the nonprofit field, um, you're probably not going to be as, as financially compensated as well as other positions. We, we know this going into the work. So I need to have a team of people who feel as though um, creating the impact, creating the outcomes, creating the, re the results for the community we're serving is as much a benefit as, as anything. And so having people who are really very aligned with the mission, or even just very curious and intrigued about the mission, I found are attributes that lead to really, really strong teams. And I say curious because um, none of us knows everything, but at Crossroads, we focus on affordable housing and we focus on community development. If I am looking for a candidate for a position on my team, yes, I'd want them to have some, some idea of the affordable housing challenge that's happening in Charlotte, but probably equally as important, I want them to be curious about how can we solve it? What are solutions that might exist in other communities that we haven't brought to Charlotte? And what is it that I don't know about this particular subject that I can learn and, and share with others? That is as important to me as say hiring someone who has been a developer and who can build a home. Um, curiosity is a really, really, is a really attractive attribute for me um, as, as an employer, as someone who's hiring a team, because I also think that leads to someone who's constantly learning. I believe that continuous learning, um, always trying to sharpen your skills, your knowledge base um, is really very important as a nonprofit professional. Right. And so if I'm a candidate uh, for a position with you, Tiffany, uh, you want me to ask good questions? I guess, how, how do I demonstrate that? Absolutely. I do want you to ask good questions. Um, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about asking good questions. I think there's a quote by Albert Einstein where he references if he had an hour to solve a problem, he'd probably spend the first 55 minutes asking good questions. <laughs> exactly. If you ask the good questions, you're probably more likely to get to the quote unquote right solution. So yeah, coming in, asking questions, coming in, um, again, not not necessarily demonstrating that you know all there is to know about a particular sector or a particular issue, but coming in very genuinely saying, I do have a certain set of skills that I think I can bring to bear um, that would positively impact your team and positively, Im positively impact the outcomes this organization is, is striving to reach. But I'm also genuinely interested in what is the problem? What really is the problem with respect to affordable housing? Is it an issue of we don't have enough housing or is it an issue of that we don't have enough people who can afford the housing that we have? Because that would dictate what a scope and sequence might look like in terms of programming or interventions or experiences we might want to create for our neighbors. Um, obviously, there are other attributes such as you do want someone who has familiarity with Microsoft Office, you know, PowerPoint right. and being able to have some of those technical skills. You also want someone with the interpersonal skills. I've also found that um, I have a penchant for creative uh, people. People who are willing to um, test things and try things and, and fail fast. I'm not afraid of of someone wanting to try the big thing. I've, I've told my team, actually, I'd you know, come with the big ideas because time and resources and other variables might make us scale down. So let's start as big as possible. So big ideas, 
um, testing, piloting, the what if kind of orientation are really very attractive to me. That's well put. And that's good advice for someone who's, I think, a candidate trying to demonstrate some of those characteristics you describe. Are, are there red flags you have seen with candidates who do not succeed? I guess the interpersonal perhaps is the, uh, you know, the intangible element you're trying to determine about a candidate, but are there things you've seen that you might advise someone, Hey, don't do this. Yeah. Um, as being in the, in the role of hiring, I would definitely tell other executive directors and they probably would share this story as well. Like, listen to your, listen to your gut. I've certainly made hiring decisions quite honestly, that, proved to be a poor fit, um, a poor fit for me and a poor fit for the candidate. And so you honestly don't do anyone any favors by hiring someone where you have this little red flag, this ink like, oh, I'm not quite sure. Some of those red flags for me have been, oftentimes when I'm interviewing, I will ask the candidate to participate in a role play, um, to, to perform an aspect of the role that I think is essential to them being successful in the position. And I have had instances where I've noticed something or seen something or heard something and it wasn't, it wasn't quite there. Um, sometimes I err on the side of, well, that's coachable. That's a, that's a skill that can be developed. But more often than not, when I, when I have asked an, a candidate to participate in a role play and he or she does not deliver on that role play, that to me is quite honestly a clear sign that they are not a good fit. And I have, I've gone against my gut right, <laughs> and right. hired a kid because I thought, well, you know, they have all these other attributes, you know, they have, they have the, the years of experience or they have some technical knowledge um, or they have, they have some good camaraderie with the panel. So I can coach them up on these other attributes and that has failed. I, that has failed me more times than, than, right. So listen to the, whatever your red flag is. And I think it might, be, it might be a red flag on an individual basis. Like my red flag is say role play and, and, and being able to really demonstrate the ability to, to make the pitch if I'm hiring a development professional. While one could say, well, that's a coachable, you could, you could probably train, teach, get that skip. But if it happens in the role play, listen to it. Do you literally use role plays in your interview process? I guess when you get to the finals or I do. How, how do you do that? I do. I give a prompt. I give a scenario. I tell the candidate, here's the situation. Here's a spreadsheet. Here's some data you need to use to develop your, your pitch. You're going to come in and make a presentation to a potential funder around a particular program. And I don't, I don't say it has to be like a specific program, but I give all the framing to come in with your best idea to ask this funder for $25,000. And it's usually me and a, and a panel, uh, other team members who would be working with the candidate. And yes, um, I, I use role plays during my interview process. That's fantastic. So it's, it's obviously not just, you know, when you get there, you're going to have to respond to questions. You're giving them a time to think about it and in essence, determine their level of preparation and then how they interact. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And even um, I invite them to ask questions about the prompt because that to me is also another indicator if a person is comfortable saying, well, you sent this information. I'm not quite sure about this or I really need this to make this decision. 
that to me is, is as important as anything else. Um, having the ability to recognize where they might need more information and feeling comfortable asking for that, even in the interview process. Like I don't, I don't discount persons fit or, or qualifications because they ask a question. The other variable I would say, and I haven't done this as much with Crossroads so much, but certainly in other, other roles, really try to evaluate the degree to which they, the candidate fits with the organization's values and the degree to which they can demonstrate that fit within, uh, within an interview setting. Again, you have to, for me, I have to think about what is, what's a coachable attribute or if it's not present or if I don't see it during the interview, if that's something that's coachable or if it's not coachable, um, what evidence do I have that this person can demonstrate a good fit with the, the organization's values as well? That's a great point. How do you tell, Tiffany? I mean, how, how do you, I know that's not a completely tangible analysis, but I'm curious how, how you go about finding if someone fits with your core values? Um, I, I usually share what the core values are and I ask people to give me an example of how they've lived into it. You know, give me um, an experience that they've had where they've had to demonstrate that they are a person who believes in teamwork or a person who believes in respect or a person who um, understands the importance of being like, culturally competent. Give an example. And it could be, quite honestly, Pat, an example where um, they missed it. You know, they could, they could tell a story of, you know, I, I thought I was a person who really valued difference and valued inclusion. But here's an example where, as I reflect on it, I didn't live into that. Because that's still, that's still a recognition of what the value is and where they might have missed the mark. And it's an opportunity for growth. So I, I'm very, I'm very rarely looking for perfection <laughs> that having, right. having not been a perfect person all my life, but I'm looking for someone who is introspective. I'm looking for someone who has um, a, a bit of a internal compass where they, they can recognize their contributions to results and outcomes that they might be experiencing. That to me is also another important attribute. That's great advice. And it, it strikes me that if I'm going to be a successful candidate, I'm looking at Crossroads, your organization. I'm going to try to uh, determine what are your core values and and then be ready to describe where in my background, perhaps my core values correspond with yours. Yes, um, where they correspond. Or if you're at a, a moment of, of personal growth, you might say, I recognize that I have not always lived into this value. Right. And I, it's becoming evident to me that this is, this is who I want to be for the next part of my own personal journey. So I'm really interested in how um, Crossroads has, has cultivated this value, lived into it, and how I can live into it and maybe grow into it. That's great advice. And that, but it, it, Tiffany, you yourself perhaps might use the term a lateral entry, your experience successful in the public sector, moving into the more traditional nonprofit. Many of our listeners um, come from the for-profit side and perhaps have inspiration to join nonprofit. What are you, what do you think are the issues for someone leaving for-profit to work in nonprofit? Hmm. I would say 
Well, when I think that that is a transition that can definitely happen, I've had conversations with candidates who've had mostly for-profit private sector experience. And it's really about sort of dissecting the role, the position for which he or she might be applying into those transferable skills. Um, if it's communication, if it's strategic planning, if it's budgeting, if it's marketing and communications, just finding where and how what you might have done in one particular sector translates to the nonprofit sector. And there's always that connection, there's always that overlay because even though it's nonprofit, we're still an organization, we're still a, a business, and we still have, need those same skill sets um, from our employees. I would offer, um, I know for me, going from a large nonprofit to a small nonprofit, some of the systems and structures are just not in place or not as um, developed, if you will, in the nonprofit space. So that might be a little bit of an adjustment. Right. Someone coming from for-profit or private sector into nonprofit world. And I would say you have to be, in some instances, a jack or jackalin of all trades. There, there really isn't, there really isn't as much opportunity to quote unquote just do your job in nonprofit. Right. Sometimes you are wearing multiple hats. So, so the, the ability to be flexible and adaptable and uh, contributing where you can, when you can, however you can, is oftentimes necessary in a nonprofit space. You just don't have the bandwidth in terms of number of employees. You don't have the bandwidth in terms of um, positions, um, systems. So there's a lot of, okay, let's figure this out. And how can I, how can I do this part today? And then this part tomorrow? Yeah, that's well put. You know, I, I wonder, Tiffany, if, if someone like you, as you moved up in the nonprofit leadership kind of uh, ladder, when do you know you're ready? And when did you know that you were ready to be an executive director. Uh, many of our listeners and you and I both have talked to colleagues who are pondering exactly that. I think I'm ready or I, I'm not sure. What was that thought process like for you when it was time to, to, to make the jump to be an executive director? Well, now, Patton, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I knew I was ready, if I am being 100% honest and authentic. What I, what, I, <clears throat> what I was listening to was I'm working in a nonprofit organization. I'd had an opportunity to have several roles and responsibilities within that organization. And honestly, the executive director position opportunities kept coming to me. Um, it's funny sometimes people can see perhaps more in you than you might see in yourself or see a level of readiness than you might see in yourself. So I, I had been asked to be a part of an executive director fellowship at the nonprofit where I worked just prior to joining Crossroads. Um, and then I was talking with some other nonprofit leaders about next steps and what I might want to be considering in the next year or two. And they kept saying, well, you know, there's this role, there's this position. 
you should consider. And I, I think a part of it in terms of me wanting to think about what was next was really trying to figure out how I could, how I contribute, could contribute more, how I can contribute differently. Um, having worked for the city of Charlotte and having worked in Charlotte for all of my adult career, I really was beginning to have this longing for making a different kind of difference, a different kind of impact, if you will. Um, I had been wanting to get back to more community, grassroots almost level work and being able to see and feel um, that the work I was leading was, was much more, was much closer to the people and the community in which I live and love. So that was a bit of a calling for me, I guess, was feeling right. like I want to want to get back to home. I want to get back to feeling like I am impacting lives in a different way. What strikes me that you, you combine both the reflection of your own journey and the vision you have for the future, but also reliance on trusted mentors and advisors, right? Yes. Who sometimes sometimes see you in a different way than obviously you can see yourself. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that is very important because sometimes we are we are blinded by our own our own perceptions of ourselves, good or bad. And so having mentors to um, consult and to have as thought partners, I think is really, really important. And I, I think just being able to be reflective and being able to um, be vulnerable is, is as much a mark of wanting to be in an executive director leadership role as anything else, because there's the work, there's the mission, but there's also like the people you're leading right. and you have to be in a certain you have to be at a certain level yourself, I think, in order to lead an organization toward its mission, but also to lead a team of people around that mission and to inspire and influence. Um, so there's, there's the both and that has to happen. It's not just about wanting to, because I often think about this and I hear, when I have conversations with people who want to start nonprofits, I want to start a nonprofit, I want to start a nonprofit. I'm like, well, well why? Why do you want to start a nonprofit? And there is, probably a little bit of a view of wanting to be the leader and wanting to be in charge and wanting. So yes, there's, there's that. And you, you get plenty of opportunities to do that, but there's, there's more to being a leader of a nonprofit organization than just quote unquote, having your, your way or being able to do things your way or being able to have your organization. There's so many more relationships and there's so many more partnerships and there's so much more nuance to being a nonprofit leader than quote unquote being the leader, um, it's, it's it is it is a three hundred and sixty view that you have to have of yourself, your work, um, and what you're trying to put into the world. It goes far beyond just what I want. It is well, can I can I be good for other people? That makes such good sense and um, a, an important reflection you have kind of evidenced throughout our conversation. I, I guess now in the senior role. Does anything, what, what has surprised you about it? Are there things that obviously you were prepared, but I wonder now that you're in the senior chair, uh, mm -hmm. what, what observations or surprises have you noticed? I think I 
probably, um, while I had a sense of the sort of the internal and external view of the work, I am, I am really surprised by how much I spend my time thinking about the both and thinking about my team and making sure I am creating a culture where they can thrive and thinking about the, the community we are trying to impact and realizing the connection between the two. If I have a strong team and they are in a space where they feel like they can be their best selves and live up to their own personal professional potential, that is only going to mean good things for the community that I'm serving. Um, by the same token, I'm, I'm, I was having a conversation with a team member yesterday and we're already thinking, okay, this is January. What are we going to be doing in July after summer programs and before school start? Like, what are we doing? Because last year we, we were inundated with young people at the community center. What are the plans? So you're constantly living in the moment. You're constantly thinking about how to uh, create a strong environment for your team. You're constantly thinking about the people that you're serving. And even though I knew that, you know, living in it, it's, it's just different. It is, it's, it's, it's a constant, it's the constant both and. It is, it is always a yes and um, opportunity in the space that I'm in that I'm thinking about the work. So that hasn't been surprising, but it's been, I guess, reinforcing and confirming that that's what it would take to be a leader of the organization. I would also say um, all the different relationships you have to you have to maintain. Um, it's it's internal, it's staff, it's external, it's it's stakeholders, it's board members, it's other nonprofit leaders and peers. There are a lot of opportunities to connect. Um, there are a lot of relationships to to steward and to cultivate and to create. So um, there are just opportunities to always be both in the work and out of the work, <laughs> sort of <laughs> in your head and in conversations. And it, it fits, it happens to fit the way I'm wired, but those are, I think, aspects of the work that anyone aspiring to be a nonprofit leader um, that you, you need to be thinking about as well. Because I think people start, them, start nonprofits because they see a problem and an issue and they want to solve it. But when you are a leader of an organization, you are working towards solving that problem, but you're also maintaining all the other things that I just mentioned. So I've, I've often had conversations with people aspiring to be nonprofit leaders say, well, if you're really passionate about housing, you know, if you start a nonprofit, you got to manage people, you got to raise money, and you got to think about the board, and you got to think about cultivating relationships. You might actually move yourself off of your focus of focusing on solving this problem by starting this nonprofit organization, because that becomes what you have to then steward as well. Good point. Well, Tiffany, how do you, clearly you're committed to lifelong learning. Your journey uh, exhibits that throughout. How do you keep yourself sharp? Are there certain things you do that perhaps would offer advice to others that want to strengthen and sharpen their skills? Yes, um, this is completely random. <laughs> I need to get this Luminosity app. I, I'm intrigued by the brain and, and the brain, how it develops. And so as I, as I do this work and I'm focusing on a lot of different things, I wanna make sure my brain is healthy. So I'm, I'm curious about that muscle, random aside. The other tools though that I use, I Google a lot. I use Google, if I have questions about an internal process, um, a question around affordable housing, a question around the five determinants of health, 
um, and whether or not art, for instance, is a part of that. I, I use Google to give me a lot of quick hit resources. I've also found the Harvard Business Review website to be really, really, really um, helpful you know, in a variety of subject areas from core values and mission statements and board development, organization development to some of the broader um, societal questions that, that we wrestle with as, as a community from cultural diversity and inclusion to affordable housing. So I, I use the web a lot. Um, I've read snippets of Good to Great and, <laughs> and Jim Collins has um, a version for nonprofit. So that's an, and it's a much shorter version of the book. So right. Good to Great for Nonprofits is another, I would say, tool. Um, that I, or resource rather, that I, I keep close at hand. So reading, um, but quick hits. I have found for me right now, at this point in my life, I have books I have bought. I have bought so many books over the past couple of years. I have a nice stack of books that one day I'm going to, to tackle them. <laughs> just, just need time um, to read them. Just need time to read them. And reading, not not just about the subject that I happen to be working in, but I really do believe that um, being a well-rounded person and being able to have conversations about issues that impact what I'm doing as a nonprofit leader, but just issues that are impacting people and being conversant and being able to have conversations is important. So the medium, um, skim, uh, Googling, Harvard Business Review, the Atlantic, all websites or resources or articles or blogs that I, I check in, check in That's with fantastic. I use the phrase in our coaching module about curating knowledge. Yes. Obviously, yes, yes, yes. right. The volume's out there, but it sounds like you've been very intentional. You know the sources that have the kind of information you need. You're organized around them. And I love that. Uh, you, you also anticipated my final question, which of course is identifying a book. And uh, Jim Collins, uh, Good to Great for Nonprofits is perfect. So yes. I will lift that up. Uh, uh, Tiffany, you've had advice throughout our conversation for which I'm grateful. Is there, is there any other advice for someone aspiring to nonprofit success, or would you simply reinforce some of the items you've already shared? Um, yeah, I would reinforce some of the items I've already shared, Patton. I, I definitely would, I would probably borrow uh, a, a path from a friend of mine, quite honestly. We worked together at the city of Charlotte and she always said she wanted to be um, the head of a certain department and she is that today. And what I would what I witnessed her do was to definitely cultivate the skills she needed by working in positions in the city that gave her the skills she needed to be technically competent. But she also very much relied on speaking to people who were where she wanted to be and making sure she built a strong team, uh, a board of directors, if you will, who could help give her that advice. And I think she, unlike me, she was just always very clear in what she wanted to be. So for someone like me who wasn't clear on where they wanted to be, I would say, listen to what what really drives you and what is the theme in all of my roles, quite honestly, is making sure that I was working in space and places where I was creating access and opportunity for people 
communities that I felt were marginalized. So either know your quote unquote position or really tap into um, your passion. And, and my friend, she has passion on what she's doing as well. But for me, it was more of, I don't really know. I didn't really know I wanted to be an executive director. I didn't think 20 years ago, okay, yes, I want to be leading a nonprofit organization in Charlotte that's focused on affordable housing, community development, and supporting a, a neighborhood in, in Charlotte. I didn't have that clarity, but I always knew, gosh, I need to be working in a space and place where I feel as though I am being a part of an organization that's focused on people who are not being included. Right. That has been as much of a guide for me as anything else. That's fantastic. You and your friend have great advice to offer. What uh, she describes, I've used the phrase a personal board of directors, as you did, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I think is great as uh, I guess similar to seeking aspirational colleagues, people mm-hmm. that are in positions that you might aspire to uh, be someday. And so that mm-hmm. is great advice. And, and then do uh, everything, do everything you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't forget to sharpen all the, the saws, right. Of different skills that you need to ultimately achieve senior leadership. So that's fantastic. exactly, exactly. Well, Tiffany, where can folks, uh, obviously in the show notes, I will link to all of your ideas and resources um, and as well share the website for Crossroads. Is there any, I assume that would be the place you would send people to learn more about the great work you're doing there? Yes, they can uh, check out the crossroadscorporation.org website to learn more about the organization. Uh, We are active on social media, so sometimes I put some thoughts out there as well with respect to the work and other happenings going on in the world. Um, So yeah, that's the best way, best places to find out. Those are the best places. Well, Tiffany, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thank you so much, Pat. And I appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tiffany as much as I did. And if you were scrambling to jot down some of the notes and Tiffany's ideas and resources, never fear. We've got them all on the show notes associated with this episode. So just check out episode number 19 on the podcast link at patentmcdowell.com for all of that good information. As always, thank you for listening. And please consider subscribing to our podcast and perhaps sharing this episode with others that you know that are also on the nonprofit path to leadership. Thanks for all you do for the nonprofit sector and for your efforts to get better so that you'll be able to serve a cause that is meaningful to you. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.